This is the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform that brings the Nordic tech community together. My name is Sean Hughes. I connect businesses with freelance tech solutions, and I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nicholas Drevinger and Gayathri Gopalakrishnan to discuss what does UX research look like when there is more AI involved. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Gayathri, do you want to uh, kick us off with a bit of an introduction, a bit of a background to yourself? Yes, happy to. Um, so my name is Gayathri and I am a part of the user experience group at ABB Research. And if um, you haven't heard about ABB, we are a huge company that works on a variety of things. Uh, you've probably come across uh, ABB's robots, but we are also quite active in areas of electrification, motion, and a lot of process automation as well. So um, I'm a UX researcher by education and by, by practice, by trade. Um, but the line of work that I'm in is a little different uh, in the sense that we work with very specialized users who work in rather strange environments. So it's not, not usually consumers we're talking about. We're talking about experts operators, process engineers, so these guys who have been using advanced forms of automation uh, for quite some time now. So that's really the context where um, me and my team work. And our focus is mostly on topics of human automation interaction, but also a little bit of translating those theoretical insights that we have uh, in, in human automation dynamics and turning them into interfaces that make it easier for our end users and customers to engage with our products. So that's uh, the core of what we do in our team. Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Nicholas, do you want to give me a background on, on yourself too? Absolutely. Um, so up until very recently, I was UX lead at Furhat Robotics, uh, which is a social robotics company that it's a robot that interacts with us the way we do with each other. So by listening, speaking and showing emotion, uh, it's been called the human face of AI. But uh, I have recently left to start my own uh, business and I'm still waiting for the Swedish authorities. It's actually not public as of this, this moment. So it's a bit of an unofficial reveal. Um, that I'm starting uh, this books, designing products and user experiences, and we're offering offering consulting services in uh, in product development, whether it's physical or digital products, and uh, but always with the user in focus. Uh, yeah, that's. Well, there's a little, there's a little uh, exclusive on the Evolution Exchange there, a little bit of a soft <laughs> launch prior to prior to going public. Thank you very much for that, Nicholas. Now that we've established a context to the both of you. Let's move on to the topic in focus today. So you've both brought a couple of questions to um, to the recording session um, and they center around the topic I mentioned earlier, which is what does UX research look like when there is more AI involved? As usual, um, I'll basically pass between the two of you for you to pose your questions and we'll work our way between the two of you as well to give your experiences, your opinions, of those questions. So we'll start with you, Nicholas. The first question that you asked uh, is what new risks do researchers and designers face with products relying on AI and machine learning? So do you want to give us a bit of a, um, a context to that question um, before we get uh, Gayathri's thoughts? 
Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's there's a lot new cases that arise when you have AI, and maybe we don't have as much control in in all aspects. Um, I've obviously been working with Farad Robotics, and it's you know uh, social robots. They're both conversational, dynamic, situated. Is probably some of the most complex interactions there's out there, and there are certain things I see there which I haven't seen in other cases. Um, so that's basically where that comes from. Fantastic. Gayathri, what are your thoughts on, on the question that Nicholas asks around uh, risks relying on AI and machine learning? I think it's a really, really good question. Um, and I think a lot of things when it comes to AI or machine learning, I would say that from a user experience perspective, the risks are not entirely new, but they are amplified in many ways as compared to traditional user experiences. So um, I, 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 if we took the bare essentials of it, all of user experience is about matching uh, the mental model that the user has with the model around which the system is built. And then you want to reduce the gap as much as possible and make sure you help your user build the right mental model. Uh, an additional challenge the moment you start working with AI or machine learning is that the mental model that the system has is not static and it's often not easily explained. I mean, even the expert who built the AI cannot fully explain why it's doing what it's doing, which makes it even harder for somebody in user experience or the end user to make sense of why the system is doing what it's doing. So um, this challenge of mental model becomes way more complicated uh, the moment we bring in um, more advanced forms of AI, ML, whatever, advanced automation and intelligence into the equation. Um, I, I also think the other risk that um, I see with increasing uh, use of AI, ML and so on is that we need to engage users way more than we have in the past. There are new paradigms like active machine learning, interactive machine learning, all of which are making the assumption that the user is going to sit there and give you feedback and input. And as any UX person who has maybe run a survey or done interviews, you know how hard it is to actually make people spend more time with you on your product than barely necessary. So making these assumptions in advanced paradigms like um, active or interactive machine learning where we believe that the user will engage with the system continuously and give feedback give input that is going to be a new challenge that's going to be a new level of engagement that we need to design for and it's not easy to do so that's um, a second i won't call it so much of a risk but a bigger challenge uh, when it comes to designing uh, for ai or ml systems Perfect. Thank you very much. Nicholas, what are your thoughts on, on Gayathri's sort of experience here? Uh, I think she's she's spot on with uh, with a lot of it. Really that you need to do to do more user testing, especially I, I think uh, to to cover all these because it can become a bit of a a bit of a black box. The more you rely on on uh, AI, the more Things you don't know what's what's going to happen, and that both is both what the user is going to do, but also maybe what your system is going to do. 
Um, generally, we try to use, uh, I, I say we, I'm not a fur anymore, but I will still do that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's usually a mix between rule-based and, and AI to, to not have it go too much off the rails, because that can really happen. And that's obviously a, a risk. We did some experiments with uh, GPT-3, which is a open source uh, conversational AI. And it's, it's impressive in many ways, started out great. But after a while of me as testing this, it started making predictions about my future sex life. So you, you really got to be careful with like, you need to set boundaries of this. And this is, uh, you need to test a lot. Uh, and probably more, both more iterative um, and more um, more validating. So you need to check that your system actually does what you intended to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if I could add to this point, because the the keyword in what you were saying, Nicholas, I think is iterative, and that is really important. That the UX way of thinking, or like thinking about the forget. UX, I mean, user-centered, human-centered way of thinking is going to become key because all of AI, ML, whatever you call it, relies on data. So put garbage in, you get only garbage out. That's almost guaranteed. So now we need to start thinking about the data that goes into the system in addition to the interaction with the system. So I would say that user experience professionals sort of have a responsibility to be more closely involved in the overall life cycle of the product in deciding things like, are we getting biased data? Are we covering a good enough uh, representation of all the different types of users and user groups that might come in contact with our product? So those kind of questions become more and more important and need to be integrated into the life cycle of the product, but also in the MLOps or DevOps or whatever um, sort of product development process that we use. Brilliant. We'll move on to the next question then. Gayathri, you wanted to ask, um, it's sort of integrated a little bit into the question that, that Nicholas um, has just asked and we can sort of segue in quite nicely. How is UX research and design different for smarter, more intelligent machine learning and AI systems? Do you want to give us a background to that? Well, I was um, basically reflecting on what would be different from the traditional way of working and uh, I mean I guess we covered a couple of points in the previous answer but uh, may maybe it's still worth taking a look at what the key differences are what what should be uh, say rules of thumb or new ways of thinking when we are working with uh, ML or AI systems. Nicholas what are your thoughts? Uh, it's really interesting the last last point there because that uh, that's something we worked on with there there are often no no guidelines and no best practices you have to invent them as as you go because it's a completely new uh, new field but uh, but in general I mean there are still a lot of similarities still I, I think and we need to remember that that like the in in the core you still need to to find out the needs of your of your users, and and that's sort of the core. Uh, but then, obviously, later you need to to iterate in a in a different way, which is obviously obviously different than uh, than what we what we do now. So, but more more testing, I think, is is the the main thing. But we touched on this already. <laughs> we definitely have. We definitely have. It is a similar question. Would you agree with what Nicholas is saying, Gary? Yeah, of course, of course. The the testing is going to be crucial 
And testing is not only till we release the product, but uh, throughout the life cycle, because uh, a lot of these ML or AI models tend to drift. So you build it making certain assumptions, but in the real world, things keep changing. The weather is different. You change a piece of equipment, you change parameters on a piece of equipment, and then all, all that your AI or ML model has learned changes. And we the goal is to make systems that learn on the go. And there is every risk that it'll learn the wrong thing on the go. So how are we going to keep track of that and keep testing even after we have deployed the product and you no know, double check with our users that our system is doing the intended thing is and it's not no learning the wrong wrong concepts i think again that this segues nicely into a question that um we've also got here for today's episode um talking uh, about as you just did there guy three on um <clears throat> using on, on ensuring that your that your machine learning and your ai is learning the right thing um and nicholas sort of asks similarly to that around the way in which this presents a challenge and how users and sorry not users how researchers and designers can handle the difference in user behavior and perception and how that can sometimes rely on their um, familiarity or comfortability or skills or how used to they are um, in interacting with a specific system uh, Nicholas give us a bit more of a of a context to that and then we'll go to Gayathri to um, to get her thoughts mm. uh, no but it's um, the background is that you know, often users behave different in different contexts and for different scenarios, obviously, and and it's different depend both if they know they're talking to an AI uh, and also are interacting with an AI, sorry, uh, or and also how much have they done that before and how has the, have those experiences been? And that sort of adds a lot of complexity to what we can expect from our users. And that's something I've had to we've had to handle. And I'm interested on Gaeta's thoughts on this. Let's hear your thoughts. Um, thoughts, plenty. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, um, it's, it's a really critical aspect, uh, these questions around user behavior and perception of AI, because I mean, more, very recently, we've been having a lot of discussions at ADB, very often with extremely uh, technology focused uh, people. And even even the most most technology focused people uh, are um, are of the opinion that when it comes to AI, technology is not the thing that is the biggest problem. It's the people, the perception and adoption. Uh, which is a bigger problem. I mean, of course, you can build better algorithms, but you cannot guarantee that a user will trust it. So it's as much a, a problem or challenge from a user experience perspective as it is from a technology perspective to build good um, AI systems. And uh, along the lines of uh, how different users react, algorithm aversion, that, that's a real thing. And since in our um, line of work at ABB, we work a lot with specialized users, so we're often dealing with operators who have 15 years of experience in something. And very often it is, you, you see that experts have a greater trust issue when it comes to algorithms. They might be thinking that I can do better than this. I'm trained 15 years. Is this AI going to be better than me? So gaining their trust is going to be 
quite a bit of a user experience design uh, challenge. I mean, it, they can't, they won't just blindly trust it. And I like saying this a lot. You can build really smart algorithms, but humans have a superpower. They will turn it off if they don't trust it. So um, dealing with that is going to be uh, one of the big challenges ahead of us in the user experience. And uh, these kind of man-machine dynamics are influenced by a lot of things and one of the one of the items that i at least uh, in my experience feel has a big impact is the anthropomorphism which i think nicholas you're super familiar with it um, the more closer you go to anthropomorphic characteristics they affect the expectations of people so the moment you put a name on it the moment you put a voice to it a face to it as as a person, you have certain expectations. Your biases on cultures kick in immediately, and then you want the AI to do things a certain way, behave in a certain way. So it's really a question that all AI or all UX designers working on AI, ML, those kind of things need to ask themselves. Do you really need to go the anthropomorphism route, or can you get away with using the AI ML as a tool? So, I mean, autocorrect is still some intelligence, but you don't have a name on it. You don't have a face on it. You don't have giant expectations from it, other than that it can autocorrect your bad steps. So, I mean, designing the AI solution as a tool has its advantages um, as compared to designing uh, in, in an anthropomorphic environment, which is super cool, super interesting, but also super challenging to do. So very often, at least, um, Personally, I prefer the more uh, AI as a tool approach, which uh, has lesser barriers to adoption. So that that might be something to think about. What do you think, Nicholas? No, but it's it's very interesting questions that get uh, raises, and and it's obviously something we've we've discussed and thought about. Uh, a lot, and uh, we we had a very good speaker, I think, at uh, at the Ferhat conference that was very recently, uh, Mike Petzel from from Potsdam University, on on how uh, how this changes over time. That like people go in with certain uh, perceptions, and and a lot of the research is sort of based on that initial. Uh, initial uh, ideas that people people have. So the infamous Uncanny Valley for, uh, related to what you were talking about, then that most of that research is actually based on people looking at images of robots, not actually interacting with them. And we can see like how that changes rapidly just in the short interaction and even more in between them. Um, so that's 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 one way of like you need to do we do we design for like how people will be at the start or how it will be after some time and and that's obviously especially with expert users like like you have I'm, I'm sure you deal with that a lot do you make it great from the start or is it sort of the potential uh, later on um so that's that's one aspect of it but then people get used to and carry over behaviors from from other AI systems. Like I think most people there are most familiar right now probably with voice assistants like uh, Siri or or whatnot. And um, and they tend to, if there's a, if it's a conversational system, whether it's embodied or not, they tend to use that, uh, often use that command, command response type of interaction quite often. And uh, or 
absolutely not. If they're not used it, then they're just talking like normally. So it's, it's very hard to predict user, uh, user behavior and perception at this point, now early as this field is developing. Mm -hmm. I agree. And uh, perhaps to, to add to that, um, one of the hot topics in machine learning or the AI domains is explainability. And uh, I think explainability is going to be quite key in taking people on this journey that Nicholas was mentioning. So maybe they don't trust it today, but after using it for a month, they trust it. So you, you need to take them on this journey because what is a great explanation today might be pointless a week from now. Uh, so, for example, if I'm new to this system and I need to know why it's doing what it's doing, it needs to be able to provide an explanation that makes sense to me as a user. Uh, but uh, a year from now, I'm, I'm different. I have more knowledge. Uh, I expect more from the system. And if it gives me the same explanation that it gave me a year ago, maybe that is not enough because maybe what I'm doing with the system has changed. I'm doing more complex tasks with the same system, which means I needed to act slightly differently. So this continuous evolution of both the system and the user has to happen over the life cycle of the product. And we need to facilitate that dialogue back and forth between the user and the automation for a really long time. And planning for planning ahead for it is quite a challenge. So we need to do it iteratively as going back to the point that Nicholas had. Some great points. And I think um, the notion of constant learning feeds into the final question for today's episode, um, which, which sort of circles around whether AI and machine learning will replace people. Um, we have emotional intelligence. We learn all the time. We change with the times. Um, Gareth, will you talk there about whether machine learning and AI can do that? Um, and you asked the question, do you think that, do well, does Nicholas, do the, do the listeners think um, <clears throat> that people can be replaced by AI and machine learning in the future? And what role do you think user experience can play in this uh, being a factor? So do you want to expand on that? And then we'll head to Nicholas for his, for his thoughts. Absolutely. So this is one of my uh, favorite questions um, because it's it's not an easy question to answer uh, by any measure. It's, it's a tough question. It's like crystal balling quite a bit, but uh, still there are quite a few different opinions on this and I really enjoy the different arguments that I, I hear uh, around this topic, which is why I wanted to bring this question up uh, in this forum as well, which is is, do you believe that um, AI, ML will you know, make people jobless at some point or like make people lose their jobs uh, so much so that maybe we have an economic crisis on our hands or a social crisis on our hands? What do you think, Nicholas? Uh, I mean, certain jobs and to some extent, I think it's unavoidable and it's already happening for, for sure. Um, and and I think as uh, as designers and researchers, we need to to sort of be aware of that. And I think it's important to to uh, try to also for us to be successful with whatever 
we're doing there, we need to make people sort of feel comfortable with with this happening. Um, but also, I think the the fear of this happening is is really exaggerated, but it's also understandable. Um, and it, it, so it's it's really important, sort of what use cases we we actually do, how we present it, um, and. And this is something we've been very cautious of at Furhat and very, very conscious of, of how we do this. Um, but then it's also in how you do it, like how do you include those affected by it and both users and others uh, in the development of it and in deployment of it. You can make, can you then make them feel as more part of this new solution uh, rather than replaced by it? Uh, and personally, I believe very, very much in in using AI to work together with humans rather than than replacing it. So you can you can let AI take over certain tasks, but then uh, the human do do others. Um, and when it comes to to use cases, I worked for a year with with Tengai that does unbiased recruitment. Um, and and I mean, who doesn't want recruitment to be to be unbiased? So there is a really great use case that people feel more more good about. But still, there is that fear that it, you know it will take recruiters' jobs, and and there's lots of other fears around it as well. Um, and and specifically there, then it's both a good use case, but also you know we hand off certain tasks. You know, more analyzing the answers on more complex questions is left over to recruiters. Um, and they sort of have the the final say, and then they feel an ownership, and they don't feel as hopefully at least <laughs> don't feel as replaced. So it, it really depends what you do and how you do it. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts to 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 sum up, Gaia three? That's a really good uh, point that Nicholas made that people need to feel included in the transition uh, towards having more uh, AI and such. But perhaps I can also add add my two cents on the same topic, which is um, I agree with Nicholas in that things will change inevitably, but the the narrative that exists today that uh, AI is going to start doing everything, I mean, at least from what I have heard from AI experts, we are really, really far away from that kind of general intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's super far away. So the Terminator movie is not happening in any time soon. So, I mean, we shouldn't be you know, losing out on opportunities in this new technology just because we worry about that doomsday scenario. Because, I mean, that doomsday scenario is nowhere near to begin with, and it's very, very likely that will not happen. The role that people play, the role that humans have in the ecosystem will change. But that doesn't mean we'll have nothing to do because all AI eventually is in service of some human goal. I mean, otherwise, why do you want to build an AI that just, I mean, why is it even there? We would build it only because it serves some human goal. So there is going to be a place or there will be a big role that humans will continue to play. And the transition is what is most important. And I can give you an example of that. So let's say we have autonomous trucks. Um, hitting the roads very soon, let's say in two years. Even if the autonomous trucks are really good, we will have a transition phase where uh, the legal, social and every other element around the ecosystem needs to develop. So what we might likely have is remote control stations for autonomous trucks. 
So maybe we don't have truck drivers sitting in a truck, but we will have truck drivers who sit remotely and monitor trucks, making sure the autonomous trucks are doing what they're supposed to do and supporting these autonomous vehicles when the need arises. And in another 10, 15 years, when technology is getting much better, their role will evolve into more fleet management or planning. So it is more of a role evolution, and I see it as the role of user experience professional to assist in this evolution of people. There are tons of people in both academia and in the AI communities who are thinking about how do we make machines smarter? How do we make the evolution from level zero automation or level zero autonomy to level 10 autonomy possible? But there are barely uh, any people thinking about what is the human being going to do in the ecosystem as the automation goes from level zero to level 10. And I see that as a great opportunity for UX professionals to step in and say, this is what the user does. We find meaningful tasks for the human in the ecosystem to make sure that they feel engaged, they feel involved. And it's, it's more of a give and take mechanism between the automation and the human as compared to being replaced by one or the other. So um, that was my uh, thought around this very popular question of will AI replace uh, human jobs? Fantastic. It's great to get both of your insights on, on some fantastic questions. We'll leave it there for today. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take the opportunity to thank Nicholas and Gareth for providing their their insights into the topic today and, and thank you for listening as well. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please do reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at sean.hughes at evolutionnordics.com and we'll see you next time.